That's a good morning, everyone. <laughs> uh, and welcome to yet another um, episode of Broken English Podcast. And as you can hear by my voice, it's very early in the morning. And um, it's something that I just thought it would be maybe nice to record sometimes, like um, breakfast conversations. Um, and for today, especially because a dear friend of mine, came back to Berlin uh, after being away for some months, um, which she often does. Um, so, yes, good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Mila. <laughs> Guten Appetit! <laughs> Sorry for molesting you like this in the morning with a <laughs> no. recording podcast and so on. Um But yes, uh, Rebecca Layton, she is an uh, artist and poet. Did I introduce you well? Do you add something else as your title? No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and she, for the last decade, she was based between Berlin and New York. No? Yeah, 12 years. 12 and a half years. Wow, this. The way you're saying it, it's like a punishment, like, oh my God, 12 and a half years. Yeah, I can't imagine um, how it's to live like that, but maybe you can tell some stuff. And thank you for this wonderful breakfast. I didn't expect this service. <laughs> no That's super nice. Um, yes, so we met, you know, during the studies in Weimar. And I think you are the one person I knew, like, oh, my gosh, she already lives in, New in Berlin and, like, she knows everything and, and so on. So um, just to make it clear for people, you're actually from U.S., you're from New York, but then you decided to come to Berlin. And how did you come to Berlin? Uh, yeah, I... I grew up in the U.S., that's right, and I was always very curious to leave, and yeah, when the opportunity came, I took it. That was in 2010, or actually it was offered in 2009, but I was working for a small gallery space in Brooklyn, And they decided to move to Berlin and offered for me to come for uh, for three to six months. Um, and I took it because, um, yeah, it was a flight. It was a free flight. <laughs> That's how much it takes yeah. to leave New York. Just give me a free flight yeah. and I'm going to leave. Exactly. That's yeah. sweet. Cool. Yeah. And then, um, oh, okay. But uh, what? I think I should make more coffee, though. Yeah, sure. Try Because my brain's me. not working yet. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, the breakfast spread, they had like vegan and gluten-free options for everything. It's like, wow, I've lived in Germany long enough that I can get a vegan and gluten-free option. Like when I moved here. There was no. Yeah, I mean. But also, is it in your ass? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it just feels like watching a country develop. We're growing. Like, further into shit <laughs> means, like, you get, now you get a gluten-free option, but... What kind of hotel was that? It must be a very fancy one. No, it wasn't. It was, like, a select hotel. You know this chain? No. <laughs> It's, like, a small chain, like, Ibis. Uh -huh. But I think even smaller. And uh, the like, you know, it's just a small room. And you walk in and there's like, 
this glass like triangle and inside the glass triangle was like the toilet and the shower the glass had, it had like grass painted on oh. it and then the whole decor was like splattered paint kind of but in my room it was red so it oh looked more God. like blood oh it is designers of hotel chains <laughs> This and Airbnb, yeah, you know, like that are just for Airbnb. Mm-hmm. You know, welcome home mm-hmm. from the carton letters. Yeah, I mean, actually, this signage I find often gives me anxiety. That's like laugh, joy, like what? fulfillment. Yeah, <laughs> when it's so many words on top of each other. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Yeah, that's it. a good anxiety. <laughs> it's like, fuck you. <laughs> it's in the morning. <laughs> serve, don't serve breakfast at 7 a.m. You know? Yeah. Let's start from there. Yeah. I hated it always. It ends at 10. This one was good. It was like, I think, 6.30 to 10.30 or something. Mm. Yeah. Good. So, to continue, why are you wearing Bremen? You I were recording the whole time. <laughs> That's good. Um, so let's start it from there. Start from there because you were now in Bremen, um, and you were just showing me very nice small publication. Uh, can you tell me a bit about it? What it was? It was because I see your poems inside. Yeah, I was in Bremen. Uh, through an art center there that gathered some artists that were uh, involved with their space in the past three years, two, three years. And uh, they made a publication of all artists that they were kind of in contact with at the time. Uh, And yeah, the publication was very open, like whatever you wanted to contribute. So... Yeah, so it's actually just a very short excerpt from a very long poem mm-hmm. uh, and some images as well. But yeah, it's, um, yeah. Can you tell me, I mean, I know very little. Like first time I heard your poems, was it a year ago? Yeah, exactly. In Kelly's? Yeah. And I was very surprised because I never heard it before. So, I don't know. What was surprising? That was very good. <laughs> From your perspective, yeah? <laughs> I mean, it's not that I'm an expert, but um, I did not, you know, I never listened to you. I, I did not know that you were very much interested in, and you were not alone on reading there. So, you know, there were like, I don't know, seven people, maybe around seven. And then I could compare as well and what was for me. And I was surprised, actually. So, um, <laughs> but not in a bad way. No. Well, how it's come to you? Because um, I know you like enjoy writing, and but um, also this process of you writing poetry. Like, how do you do it? Like, what is the strategy for you to write it? Does it take time? Is it like intuition? Is it, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, how it's for you? And you write in, 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 in English. Sometimes I write in German. Really? But I don't share those. Well, you don't share any of the That's stuff. not true. There's, I mean, a, I don't know there's where. a select crowd. The problem that I've found with writing and poetry in particular, um, because it's such a, I'll answer the question, but just a side note, mm-hmm. is... Like, we know how the art world works, right? Like, what you have to apply to. If you get funding, what permissions you have to give when you're republishing things. Like, this type of crediting system. But you can always share your artwork, you know? Like, you can always post a photo of something you're working on. Mm -hmm. With writing, uh, you know, they want unpublished So most things that you apply to, there are exceptions, but most things you apply to, that's a requirement in the application, that it's unpublished. And even publishing a poem on social media counts 
Really? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I've just learned about this in the past year or so, two years. And yeah, so then it's a de decision of whether or not to share something on social media. Does it matter? Yeah. Um, and what are you trying to do with your writing? And what am I trying to do with my writing has been a big question for since I started including writing in my work, which I was 14 when I started doing that. But even, I mean, I have many writings that come before that too. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I started making art seriously as a teenager that writing was incorporated and then separated and then put back together. So. It's been a question of where does it exist and what is important? Is it important to publish it separately or care about these things at all? Mm. Am I an artist? Am I a writer? Am I both? Does the, do these questions matter? Um, but that's a very like ongoing thing for me. So to answer your question of how does the process work or how do I write a poem or something? Mm -hmm. It really depends. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I wake up and I have something in my head, or a huge part of my process has been extremely long walks, and usually on those walks there's something going on in my head that's formulating. And yeah, occasionally, it's in this final form. Other times I'm making sure I write every day for at least a few minutes to clear out whatever I was dreaming about or thinking about. And then I'm going back and editing it over time or returning back to old sketchbooks from years ago and taking things. Mm. So it's both a short process and a very long process. It depends on the poem. Mm. I mean, what you said, I want to go back to this, like uh, publishing the poems and so on. It's, it's, um, it's very unfair, seems like, because I have friends who share their poems online. And uh, I mean, maybe it's not necessarily that they see it's their primary practice or something, but this thing that you need to decide, yeah, what do you want from your poems? Do you want that your poems be uh, recognized by certain people that, I would say, have um, credits, name credits or institutional credits in this world? So you actually hide your poems from everyone else who might enjoy them, you know, like um, not sharing them online, let's say, that maybe people would really be interested in and you grow your public, but like this, keep them secret in terms to like, I don't know, apply for fundings, get publications and so on. So it's a bit, but I also know about examples that actually like through pub, like um, being publicly uh, present through social media with your poems and uh, people start noticing and then they commission or something like that, like or offer things so i don't know it's um i completely understand this i think in the in the film industry it's similar like you know like uh, short films when you want to apply for some festivals or it's a premiere to not show it anywhere for god's sake no one should see it yeah. you know so it's a bit uh, really unfair it's not like you can share the process yeah like the... yeah it's complicated <laughs> and i think again it's this question of yeah, what makes sense for you in also a very changing environment because, of course, many of these long-established guidelines and rules aren't working anymore. And, of course, people are making other decisions and it's not harming their practice, it's helping. So for me, the other issue is my relationship to technology as well. Like, do I want Instagram to own my images and words? And, you know, in a society where that's normalcy now, 
is it important for me personally to do things in a different way? But that's, of course, a great difficulty because most opportunities now come through social media, whether that's artistic practice or writing or whatever it might be. It's the most used way or being extremely active networking. So as a person who likes to share, likes to be social, but doesn't like to force myself to network, to interact with what I find are consumptive methods of technology, it poses a lot of tricky questions. And I think a lot of that is related to how much I think and connect things and then feel uncomfortable about maybe using certain mediums. So it's multifaceted mm -hmm. and complicated when, yeah, when sometimes it feels like there's only option A or option mm -hmm. B to then try and figure out what alternative options work for your work. And that's what I'm still, I think, trying to figure out. Yeah. Because even when I was primarily working in sculpture and writing longer texts, um, even sharing photos of the sculpture was difficult on my website because it was so oriented to in-person experience and very subtle details and the architecture of the space. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting element there, but also what does it mean to like let go and just not care how things look or feel mm -hmm. um, and be more open with it versus like wanting to make sure things are presented in a way that makes sense on several different levels. Yeah, but um, I think when you're saying this in terms of presentation of the work, it's uh, primarily has have sense for you in many different layers. But it's it's also a lot of a question. Um, I think in the in some previous episodes we were speaking about this, like uh, presenting a work through the years in different places, in mm -hmm. different spaces, in different contexts. What some might think of, and um, I was quite pro this thing because. Mm -hmm. I change and the work should change, yeah. I feel. Like, I mean, of course, some works reflect certain period of me and the space and the topic. But if there is an option to add another layer, not actually to, I mean, compromise in a negative way, but to expand it even more. But the, the thing is, it's, it's a lot about, I'm also not a, really big fan of thinking oh what public will think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how much I'm interested in that in the terms of creating the work yeah. but once it's out there once you think okay this is uh, the moment the version I want to present it yeah. then the public I guess come into the point and then you start listening feedbacks and yeah. um, <clears throat> and at this point I think sometimes I feel like even just uh, to trigger certain discussion I feel like that's the success, you know, yeah. uh, because mm -hmm. it can trigger even different topics that I never thought of, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's the strength of any artistic practice is that prompting. I think that's the sign of a good work is when you're still thinking about something related to it days, years later, mm. it brings up some question or it like bothers you in some way. Mm. Like a work that bothers you is a great work, you know? And yeah, exactly what you're saying. You can't have any idea what a public reacts yeah. or how they react um, or how they're going to feel just like in any form of life, not just art, but just walking around on the street um so yeah does it make sense to even consider but I mean I think that's considering presentation which is very important and whether it's 
with artwork or I feel like with my poems, how they're read, of course, is very important, how they're heard, how they're presented that way. In which sense? Like you mean uh, if like you would like to be in control of how people are reading it or? Well, that's part, I think, of a poem is constructing it in a way that you are trying to lead the reader to read it in a certain way, either with spacing or punctuation or the lack of it or, um, yeah, how things are spelt or assembled together, how they exist on a page. Those are kind of guidelines for a reader to read it the way you're hearing it in your head, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm also, I didn't study poetry or anything. I don't know what like a professional poet would comment on that. But for me, when I'm writing and deciding which verses go where, a lot of it has to do with constructing a speed or a sound um, or hoping that that comes across because it feels important to, to reading and understanding. Yeah, completely. I mean, I agree. And um, I think the whole podcast here questions the word professionalism <laughs> yeah. in a way. And uh, so we can let go of that burden yes. or, or streaming to something like oh, that. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, but um, I want to uh, go into other more fun topics also that are, uh, you know, I will never forget uh, once, I mean, you know that why broken English actually came to, about because I, I was annoyed by perfect English. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to have English-speaking personal. <laughs> and now I had like many. Yeah. And uh, that's totally fine. And because it's it's a language, you know, and but I, I will never forget that once you said um, that how, you know, because in our program, they were mostly like uh, English was second language or third language and you were native, you know, and how actually your mother tongue got so bad by being around your friends and not bad, but like kind of downgraded to a certain level. <laughs> you you lower your, your vocabulary and so on, because I know once you were on a date or something with a person that spoke it was from your neighborhood or something, and you were like, oh my God, the words I used. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, it Clutch. was so good. <laughs> it was so good. Um, yeah, I would definitely not say bad or downgraded at this point in my life. Because even before we met in Weimar, my English had completely changed. Because when I moved to Germany, I didn't know German at all. I actually had nightmares um, where, <laughs> yeah, crazy nightmares where I'd be like on the U-Bahn in my nightmare and a person would turn to me and say one word in German and I would wake up with that word in my head and go to my little dictionary and try and find it and see what it meant. Oh my God. But it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's also how I tried to learn German when I moved here is by reading the dictionary, which is hilarious. And I misinterpreted many words. But um, with my English, yeah, it's not what it was pre-2010. But I also wouldn't want to have that kind of English again existing in my daily life. What would that be? I mean, I, I can relate because I think yeah. it happens always with mother tongues when yeah. you move away. Yeah. Well, I think my, I know my mother tongue, like I was born with English and I grew up hearing some Yiddish and my parents, and family are from New York and Long Island and we grew up in New Jersey so there's all sorts of slang and interesting pronunciation of words but what living in a different country gave me and having friends who are 
when I first moved here, the friends I made were basically all German. I very intentionally didn't want to meet anyone from the States or be involved in like an expat scene here. And it allowed me to imagine words in different ways and how things are constructed. So it changed my English first. I'm already doing it. <laughs> my English <laughs> first changed by switching around the order of words. Because even though I didn't understand German yet, I understood that the structuring was different. And even starting with that and being slower, because of course coming from New York, apparently I talk really fast, which I never think. But uh, So yeah, the structuring changed first and then how to describe things, how to be understood, especially as I started learning German and having friends that would only speak German with me. And coming to the master's program then, at that point... You were pretty fucked up. <laughs> no. <laughs> my, my mother tongue had expanded. <laughs> um, but I... Yeah, I love speaking English this way because there are so many beautiful combinations that come out and... I mean, my favorite phrasing still is from Anthony when he told me I have rainy eyes. Oh. You know, which, like, I would never think that combination up, but it's so perfect, yeah. you know? Also sad, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, but for a long time, I kept a list of these things, or, you know, I've had very close friendships, relationships, ongoing partnerships with people who also ask if I can correct what they're saying. And for me, proper English is dead. Like British English and American English is dead. Like I say it all the time because, yeah, if you're if you're centralized in one location where everyone grew up, learning, you know, having English as their mother tongue, even then, the slang, all, all of these things change how English is spoken. So I don't believe that there was ever a proper English that made sense. Like, even in my schooling, being in these advanced English classes and having to study and memorize these words and or when I edit a text for someone now I'm questioning a lot of what to correct and what am I saying when I'm correcting things like what political I ideologies am I going with or so yeah I don't know if that answers the question but Absolutely. I, <laughs> I think language yeah it plays a huge role in my life and artwork of course and living here has only deepened that experience I was already as a kid very interested in what words mean and how can they be used and the significance of what's said mm -hmm. but then it's a gift to imagine language in different ways and try and be understood somehow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> no, um, but uh, you, you proofread, is that the word? Proofread. Um, a lot of our thesis, thesis works from your colleagues. <laughs> Yeah. How was that for you? I mean, was it fun? I know like my, you proofread my thesis and when I was writing my thesis, to give a bit of context, um, I wrote it within like two, three weeks at the end, which is extremely little time. And um, I started to write it and I was using these big words and I was like, oh my God, I don't understand my thesis. 
And then I stopped doing that. And I was just reading. I was also extremely high most of the time <laughs> by, by writing it. And I wrote it. It was highly personal, subjective, you know, a bit bitchy in some points. And you proof, proofread it. And then I was like, I put my thesis away for years. I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible, horrible. And this, these months, like a couple of months ago, I, I opened my thesis and I enjoyed so much. I don't know why. It's, maybe I would do it the same, like uh, the way I was writing about it. And uh, yeah, but of course, like how was for you actually, you know, um, trying to not influence as much as you were saying now, you know, like um, to still still keep this kind of uh, freshness or incorrect incorrectness in a way that it's not like maybe grammarly incorrect but you know you would never maybe pointed it in that way and I know like I don't know Sasha had a completely different style of writing you know Anthony and you know yeah yeah I'm trying to remember exactly now it's like 2017 yeah yeah, yeah 2016 and 2017 is when I was doing that for people Yeah, it was fascinating to see how everyone wrote because writing was really not part of our program, which is a shame. But that was really interesting to see how people composed what they wanted to say about their work, but also the ideas behind their work, the theory, the history. So what those writing styles look like, or maybe how people were taught how to write an academic, technically academic text. I'm, you know, masters of fine arts. When I look at my thesis as poems and images and some references, uh, which I don't think is less valid than an academic paper, of course. But that was a very interesting thing to go through to be editing so many different ways of writing about several different topics and for me it's most important to make sure I understand what the person is trying to say not grammatically or yeah not in a standard way but I mean like the feeling behind it so this worked really well with many people who understood that, that I didn't want to change their voice or the feeling they were trying to give in their writing. Because I don't think any writing is actually dry. Like if it's dry and there's no feeling behind it, it's also trying to tell you something. So, what that often looked like was me doing a very basic read through, highlighting the things that didn't make sense to me, adjusting small errors like spelling or something like that, Mm -hmm. but anything that I felt I wasn't a million percent sure on, which is like nothing because I often feel everything's open to interpretation, So then walking through a text with someone completely, Mm. like, okay, on page two, there's the second part of this sentence that says this, do you mean it this way or that way? So for some people, they enjoy that as well, to see the possibilities Mm. and also to try to come to a point of understanding because if you write something, maybe it's hard to imagine that it could be read a different way. but then there were also people who really would have preferred, I think, just uh, giving me the authority to just change things completely. Um, which, you know, in other jobs now I've had that possibility too, in editing interviews or whatever it might be. But I found that the thesis is so personal that it's very important to clarify feelings behind words. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, it was fascinating to see how differently everyone rode and uh, even to understand certain things was really, I don't think it speaks to like having a grasp on a language, but rather how we understand language. And I was often asking myself like, why doesn't this make sense to me? What am I missing? I don't think it's the topic. I think it's my understanding yeah. of how the language is being used. <laughs> yeah, which... it's like how come it actually makes perfect sense yeah. in my head yeah. to write it like this? Yeah, and that's I don't think that's someone not having tools in the language. I think it's my understanding of the language being different and wanting to learn why someone with a different mother tongue views the sentence differently yeah. like that's fascinating to me yeah. yeah yeah that's cool that's cool um <clears throat> but uh, yeah to come back on the thing uh of living between places so what do you prefer new york or berlin <laughs> <laughs> it's not a binary unfortunately i know i know but why this long-term relationship between these two places like what was bringing you back there and what was bringing you back I mean I'm, I'm sure there were different reasons for time yeah Oof, my chest is like oh. <laughs> getting heavy uh, and how this like I mean 12 years like this is this is a kid that it's like I don't know what fourth grade but what Later. this does <laughs> like, I don't know what <laughs> what does this yeah, yeah. does to you you know living like this and uh, it's... yeah what it does to you that's why I can read my poems <laughs> <laughs> but so as I was saying like a earlier which maybe we won't even use that because I wasn't awake yet but um coming to Germany for me had everything to do with having a free ride out of the country. The working circumstances that brought me here were really, really bad, but it was a way to get out of the States. And yeah, I mean, I would have gone anywhere. And I believe you need about three months to completely adjust to a new place. Like the first month you're kind of excited and you don't know anyone really. And I didn't know the language as I was saying or the culture at all. So the first month is kind of this whirlwind. The second month you're really fucking lonely most of the time and questioning everything you've decided and should you stay or should you go and the third month usually you've got it you're like yeah. okay that's fine and most people you know the the length of like an extended trip or most artists I know I guess if you're gonna like go away for a long period of time three months is kind of what mm -hmm. that's the longest you can pull off so anyway, after the first year here, I wanted to go back to New York for many reasons. And a big one was that I couldn't, I felt I couldn't assimilate to how life felt here. Um, at that point in 2010, I think Berlin and Germany, of course, has changed a lot, especially now it's rapidly changing. But at that point, I felt like I didn't know how to live without a ladder, like without the idea of having to progress mm -hmm. and go to what's next. And this is completely related to neoliberalism, capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But like really having it built into your psyche and I was aware of that too. And as someone who tries to live in a way that is political and daily life decision-making, that was a, a strong conflict for me. It was like, why can't I live in a place where my job doesn't define who I am 
where I can stop working at a certain hour and I don't have to take it home with me, where I can exist on far less money, where there's empty space and where that's valued as part of daily life. And this is also like pre-smartphone, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I felt I had to go back to figure that out. And also I didn't, when I got the offer to move to Germany, I was a semester or two away from finishing my bachelor's and I just left my bachelor's completely. So I went back for those two reasons, I would say, to figure out what, why I felt I needed this idea of a ladder of hierarchy of the things I was taught in society growing up in New York and New Jersey. <clears throat> and yeah, that was complex. And once I got back there, I think again, it was like three months and I was like, okay, no, I need to go back to Berlin. I don't need this way. And that set off five years of living, three months in Berlin, three months in New York, three months in Berlin, three months in New York. So the question of what does that do to someone? And also my answer of like, it takes three months to get comfortable in a place. So that was an interesting choice <laughs> back then that I set that lifestyle up because what happened is I ended up living two completely separate lives yeah <laughs> which <scary>. yeah <laughs> yeah and after five years I was maxed out and decided to apply it was, yeah, a little over five years, I guess. But that was around the time I decided to apply to Weimar, to the master's mm -hmm. program, as a way to solidify myself in Germany. Because at that point, I felt Berlin is my home. It's where I want to be. It's where I can feel more able to live like a, in a way that's not on a path of predictability based on societal needs. And so I saw it as a way to do that because of my background as well. Like I don't have external financial support from a family situation. I don't have any family whatsoever in Europe. I have, you know, my practice as an artist and writer has always been the priority. So my funds personally have never been great. And I also wasn't, um, yeah, like married to a European or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So my thoughts were get into a master's program and that will give me two years of stability just in Germany. Yeah. Um, and during that time, I was mainly here, but I was still going back because of a relationship mainly and because I have a job uh, and kind of art education there. So I was going back also to make work there about the situation in the States, but for shorter periods of time. And then after finishing the master's, I decided, no, I want to be in Germany more. I got stuck in New York during the pandemic beginning. And that was like the worst experience for me was imagining that maybe I can't come back to my life here. And so once I was able to fly back, I was doing everything possible to solidify living here, not being in the States, not going back for a visit, none of that, trying to go through all the bureaucratic complexities and unfairness and cruelty to try and completely stabilize my life here and yeah I thought I could do that also completely on my own under these same circumstances of like living in a place that keeps you in an extremely precarious situation 
without support from the government at all. And I think anyone who is on a freelance visa can understand that. But in beginning these three months on and off, was that connected to your uh, visa situation as well? Or it, did you have visa or it was this like three months entry allow, allowing and then going out? Yeah. was sort of also... So there were times that I was on like a tourist visa. Mm-hmm which would extend that three-month period a bit. Um, And you get that by showing that you have money, which we all know how we prove those things. Um, But yeah, it was tied to this entry, which like technically I shouldn't have been allowed to do that because that's six months and that's three months there. But that's what I did every time. Yeah. Yeah, so there was definitely that consideration as well. And um, yeah, knowing I wasn't eligible for any kind of bigger visa here at that point Mm. based on my lifestyle and finances. Yeah, I get it. Well, yeah, it seems like a a journey, you know? I, I don't know if I could imagine myself. I think you need to have a certain personality also to able to pull off that you know but also it's um those two places are you know quite big places uh, places that you know for me going back to my hometown or here it's you know my hometown is at new york you know maybe that would i don't know maybe is it easier or harder could be both you know it's like heaven and hell Mm-hmm. Uh, going back, you know, three months, it's, as you said, it's uh, enough time to adjust somewhere, but also exactly enough time that to be sort of left out of the loop in the other place. And then you come again, like yeah. a zombie. Oh, actually, I'm here. Oh, you're again here? Like, didn't you leave? Like, it's also, you start to fade out after three months and then you're back. So it's, uh, you're like living constantly in some kind of ghost, ghost form, uh, unfortunately. I mean, I'm sorry <laughs> I'm like staring off into the distance right now, looking through the window. (laughs) Sorry about this, but this is what I get from the, you know, knowing you, but also like all this shit and that, you know, going through this. It's not maybe the thing you also choose uh, to, to, that it's your perfect scenario to do that. Or maybe we have this, oh, I would love to be six months here, six months, but once you start doing it, you see how much exhausting it is, you know, um, to move so often in that pace. Um, it is exhausting, like just organizing jobs, accommodations, working place, connections, lovers, everything. It's, it's a time management. So you should put that in your CV. <laughs> like, really? It's really crazy. But um, bef- because like before we... Uh, going towards the end, you just briefly mentioned uh, the thing that you worked in a, in a yeah art institution thing, and uh, I I wanted to do the whole one episode on the topic of art mediation, and um, because I find it also very interesting in terms of like translating or bringing closer the the notion of art with the public, you know, it's a very nice bridge. Um, so maybe just to get introduced to you because you worked, you work as a guide for uh, all these 10, 12 years, I don't know how long anymore. And you have quite big, um, experience in, in dealing with, with public, with visitors and having this, um, upper hand of like actually bringing them into the, the works, into the not just works because when i was on your tour it was more about really transporting to a certain time time frame and put setting up like everything not just the artworks but the political and social surrounding of it so how is your experience like i don't know in beginning and how it goes through time like in beginning when you start to do this and then afterwards and uh you know i feel like you really have this now in your little finger, the way we would say, but um, 
is this something that you grow through the through years or it was something that you think it can be done but through the through just like books yeah i think that's also multifaceted i mean the the art institution that i work for uh, I was there before they opened to the public. And I approached them because I was interested in the, the specific artist that they handle. I was interested in his writings. This is funny because it goes to language again, everything then. But I was in my final semester at Hunter and in one of my critiques, I made this work that was made out of drywall and it was like, I think five pieces specifically cut and then I had hinges on each side. So from one side it looked like they could move, but if you looked at them directly, they were immobile. Um, anyway, I never developed the work further, but in the critique, as a criticism, a negative criticism, someone compared my work to the artist's work and I was really pissed because as someone who's also studied art history, I did not want my work to be in the same box as this artist. But then I started reading his writings and the discussion of space and actually feeling and how the politics are connected to everything in art. Um, and in spirituality, like in every facet of life, I became super interested and approached the, the art foundation. And I approached them because in the one book of this artist's writings, there were a lot of syntax errors. So like periods missing or um, a spelling mistake. And it was driving me insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I just felt like, there's some care missing here. Like it was published a very long time ago. And, you know, so I approached them with that project. Can I come and correct the syntax errors? Um, add the periods in, correct, whatever. And then they started giving me the artist's notes. Can you transcribe them? And so my relationship to this artist and their ideas developed over a very long period of time through the writing rather than their work. And then when they decided to open the foundation to the public and develop the visitor program, they had an excellent person working there, Mary Young, who spoke to different visitor services people from all different kinds of museums to see the different forms of mediation that are used. Because of course, each museum picks a specific kind of mediation that's in line with their institution's message. So whether that's lecturing or just question-based or whatever it might be, focusing only on history, mm -hmm. focusing only on one specific artist. And so Miri did a fantastic job of like bringing such a varied amount of people in and so learning to be a guide there was a great opportunity because one, they only hired practicing artists to be guides. So we formed our own little community where there could be discussion and reading groups. There were a ton of external visitors, but I think for me working there I have a very personal connection to this space and to the artist's line of thought because of my own work, because of how I approached them initially, and because that building is the one stable building in my life. For someone that's moved around for 12 years, like that, it's a permanently installed space. It's not hopefully never going anywhere. But I think that's why, for me, 
when people want to come and see this space, it's not about me talking about a specific artist, but more the concept of what is permanent, what's important to be permanent in being alive when nothing is actually permanent. Everything is transient. So what can we talk about? We can talk about socializing and politics and the weather and the artwork and the architecture. But the most important thing for me is that when people come into that space, they have this space and time to look and think. So it's a fixed amount of time, but in that there's the freedom to not be connected to all the pressure and stress and whatever might be the good things as well that exist outside of that time together. So the best part for me is to tell someone this is how the visit goes. Like I'm here to give you time and space to look and think. Mm -hmm. And we can talk and yeah, on your visit, maybe it was more politically oriented or more historical oriented. It depends on the group. But the most beautiful experiences for me in that position are, you know, of course, meaningful discussion about whatever it might be, but also when people feel comfortable enough to sit down near an artwork, to look out the windows, to like hug the person that they're there with. Um, I've had like visitors that are like making out on my tours and like for me that's the most beautiful thing is like you feel no come on <laughs> like you feel relaxed enough in this art institution to express like love and passion towards another person in this space it's beautiful that's... but it's a bit quite like you know we have certain <laughs> you can hug that's fine but to when this you well, know no, come on you skip couple of uh you know steps in our social norms and start but making I mean, out you know that also tour. maybe i'm not so into social norms <laughs> i've been told that actually that i don't practice social norms so fuck that person but yeah maybe um maybe art spaces you know should be spaces to think look and in that thinking, quieting process where you can, you know, because you can't look, like they need each other. You need to give yourself time to actually truly look at something. Mm -hmm. And you need to give yourself time for your brain to actually start working and thinking. Yeah, but you know, people, if they pay for the tour, you know, they expect someone tells them something. Like if the tour is an hour and you pay a certain amount of money off it and then, uh, oof, half an hour of that tour it's like actually go around and wander yourself like you know people are oriented and it's just like hey i paid for it i want i want content of an hour it's, a lot of people don't think of the just being there as a provided content you know so in we yeah the foundation opened to the public in 2013 i've never gotten that complaint and I've met all sorts of people, you know, people who are very connected with the art world or people who know absolutely nothing and someone dragged them there, children, high school students. Um, and I've never, I've never had that complaint. And maybe it's the strength of ground giving a stable ground for people so for me that's like very simply explaining where we are like what is the history of the space we're in what is the philosophy the politics like very quickly and grounding it on like okay now we're all equipped with that basic knowledge maybe you know more maybe you weren't interested in all of that but like, we're all on the same page, so to say. Mm. And now we can just go and experience a space. And I think people don't, I have all the 
the information. So of course, if someone asks a question, I'm there and I do try and have a discussion on each floor of this building. So it's not like it's just complete silence all the time. But there is at least five to 10 minutes of quiet. Mm-hmm. And some people are uncomfortable with that. But once I provide a little comfort of like, we're going to speak, but just, you know, yeah. keep looking. Mm-hmm. In five minutes sounds like nothing, but it's a lot. Yeah. And I think by the time people do it once, the other four floors, yeah. they're hungry for it. Yeah for that quiet. So no one's ever complained yet. I think definitely in, in, in my case when I was there because the space is this I mean designed and it's like that I really I'm like, can you not speak? So I look around yeah. so I don't miss anything what you say, but I still want to look in every corner of all this furniture, all these everyday things like plates and cups. I want yeah. to look at it yeah. without thinking I'm gonna miss out on something you're saying. Yeah. I think that's actually because it's so it's like yeah entering someone's private house and you want to sniff around yeah yeah I think and that's a... yeah I think that for me again is in giving people some permission because I'm like in the guide position I'm the one in you know in a hierarchy like you're the visitors I'm the guide I take care of the space you're supposed to listen to the rules that I state. So giving people permission to look even when I'm talking and that they're not going to miss anything really. You know, you might miss a fact or something, but you're going to probably gain a lot more mm-hmm. on a personal level if you're not, you know, if a plate is calling to you or a piece of wood or an artwork why is it calling to you? Like, go look at it, you know? Like, your own thoughts are what's valuable here, not, oh, that's pine wood or that architecture is from this year. Mm -hmm. Like, cool, facts can ground us, but, like, what is interesting to you? There's no forced discussion. So even when I talk, I always tell people before we start, if you want to look the whole time, Mm. don't come and talk like go look and you know Mm. um yeah but that's my own way of doing it and I'm very grateful that I work at an institution that trusts the way I do that job Mm -hmm. um and yeah that has been a big reason for going back to New York because I have not found that in Germany Mm. even yeah I haven't found that in Germany. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, let's, we could like really speak forever. I mean, about many different things. And if we go into other personal aspects of life and, and visas, this could be like a day long podcast. <laughs> Uh, but I want maybe to finish, uh, I mean, first to say that uh, we're going to publish a uh, next to this, a short bonus episode with Rebecca reading her own poem. Um, so it's going to be separately published after or before this episode. Um, and I don't know, can it be shared? Yeah, if I'm okay. reading. Okay, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so if you want, you can also share it and uh, like it or follow her work. But uh, to end this, I would also be interested to know um, some names or current like poets or that you're reading at the moment or that you uh, find interesting. I mean, if you have, I, I know when someone asks me this, I'm always like, I don't know, man, like I will see what's on Instagram today. Like really, like which clip I am into it. And um, I don't want to uh force this but of course it's you i don't know colleagues that you work with or something like that like someone that it's maybe not also um you know like internationally acknowledged professional when you work who are the friends who like or people you like to talk about reading writing yeah 
I have horrible if it's your recall. father it's also fun <laughs> you know I have really horrible recall for like even favorite people when I'm put on the spot which I don't know why mm-hmm. that's a thing but they're yeah on a personal level uh, with poetry um, my uncle was a poet and my aunt will occasionally send me um, some of his poems and I spend a lot of time revisiting those uh, for a very long time now. I think he also, without knowing it, granted me permission to explore how I've lived the last 12 years and all of its good and bad. He lived um, in Milan half the year, most of the time, but also lived in East Berlin for a period of time and traveled around Germany and other places. And yeah, there's a very beautiful simplicity in his way of writing about daily life and spirituality um, that impacts me greatly. But I think also I have a very great um, small community of <laughs> writers uh, in Berlin that whose works I think are incredible. Um, but maybe I can like offer links to their works or something on yeah on the page, and I mean, yeah. As far as referencing bigger names, it's it's a lot because I think it's not just art or writing, but dance plays a big part of my life yeah. and political thought. Um, so yeah, references. I'm not a I'm not a great name dropper. No, it's fine. Me neither. I really don't <laughs> don't like also that question. But we can definitely publish in the you know description. Uh, if you have some uh, names that you would like to, um, I mean, when you publish the name, that's like you don't want that your work is necessarily seen through that prism as yeah. well. But yeah. if there is something that could uh, other people like, if they're interested in similar work, they can see. That's cool. Yeah. But we're gonna link some of your poems and oh, works and so on. And thank you so much for this breakfast. <laughs> no problem. Yes, we are now fully awake. I'm not. <laughs> I need more coffee. Sorry, we didn't finish your breakfast. Oh my god, I'm horrible. But uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, and I hope you continue doing that. And uh, as always, I'm going to mention, send your notes, impressions, corrections, uh, complaints and love on the email, Instagram, um, or by buying coffee to me and my guests uh, through buying me a coffee. Uh, support page which you can uh, find in, in the description of the podcast and in the on the Instagram page thank you so much broken English broken English